feels very much like that got played at a lot of key parties. show that always can rely on your old man's money i'm bad at this um <laughs> i'm a v rubenstein <laughs> this is a show where we tell you the true stories weird true stories behind your favorite songs sometimes not so favorite songs i get a lot of shit for not liking the songs that we cover but i like today's song kind of um i'm your host and i'm joined by a very special guest host today the coolest person I know, actor, <laughs> newscaster, Wisconsinite, Alex Ronaldo. Hello. Hi. Hi. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you for Good. thank you for joining me. So yeah, last I'm happy minute. to be here. Yes. Well, it's not a problem. I'll try and stop interrupting you. But no, I'm please. Happy just to be here. only interrupt me. <laughs> You've heard the it's show. You know what Lindsay does. Lindsay's on vacation. Mm. Uh, she's in the great state of Mexico. Ooh. And she's just having a blast. And so we're gonna we're covering for her. And this is a this is an episode that was suggested by one of our listeners. I also from the corrections department forgot to thank Sonia Corey Missio for suggesting our blurred lines episode, which she did, and we did a fun episode last week. And so this isn't this isn't this is a weird one. This is a weird one. <laughs> I'm very excited. You said that, and I am intrigued to know what is so weird about it. Uh, yes. Also, just before we get into it, also from the corrections department, I mistakenly <laughs> in our Blurred Lines episode said that, oh, Alex, you're going to be mad at me, uh, that Uh-oh. Sitting in the Dock of the Bay was a Marvin Gaye song, when clearly it is not. It is an Otis, Otis Redding. Redding. Yeah, Otis oh, Redding. Well, I know that now. <laughs> And thank you to was it Dan. Just a, was it just a mistake, or did you actually think it was a Marvin Gaye I song? I thought it was a Marvin Gaye song, because oh, I'm an idiot. Oh, God. Oof. I know. I'm, Yikes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yes, it is me, the racist one. Well. Um, but to, what are we talking about today, Alex? Wait, what are we talking about today? Rich Girl by Hall and Oates. Rich Girl by Hall and Oates. hmm And so, yes. okay. What is your history like do you have any kind of history or experience with the song no no i do not i have none whatsoever so have you heard the song before yes i've heard the okay song so just like a baseline yes okay great so why don't we why don't we listen to the song i always like to listen to the song but first mm-hmm. i'll give you kind of the thesis statement of our episode i am here to prove to you alex and to prove mm-hmm. to our listeners that hall and Oates made a deal with the devil and that is why they have they were they became the, the popular band that they did. And mm. and you laugh now, but <laughs> there's, there's No, I, I believe it because I mean, you know, I'm not the hugest Hollow Notes fan, <laughs> believe it or not. Um, but yes, they do seem like they were quite popular at one point, so you're they must a rich have, girl yeah. and you're gone too far because you know it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. You can rely on the old man's money. It's a bitch girl, but it's gone too far cause you know it don't matter anyway. So one thing I I've not- I noticed for the first time is looking at the album art, there's a yeah. box of Ritz crackers in the in the foreground. Yeah, so I'm wondering if this was originally Ritz Girl. <gasps> you think? Myth busting. Myth busting. <laughs> <laughs> there is a there is a food element which is a which is kind of weird i i mean i i think this album art is incredible yeah so there's like it's a flying saucer is that yes a, it's like a spaceship and just daryl hall and john Oates ignoring it in, in their living room it's like they're somehow at once both inside of it and outside of it yeah the top <laughs> half is like a boston album cover uh, yeah. And then he's like got a wi- like a little computer. It looks yes. like the one that Rocky gives Polly in Rocky Four. <laughs> this is kind of a bop. 
Uh, you know, okay, tell me, you get to be the hater on this episode. Yes. Why do well, we not great. like Hollow Notes? Um, I don't know. It's not bad. It's just kind of cheesy, I guess. Yeah, it is definitely cheesy. But not cheesy in like a fun way necessarily. Just kind of cheesy in just a cheesy way. Okay. It's not like a. It's like they didn't think they were being cheesy. You know what I mean? Right. Yes. Well, yeah, they took this very the song very seriously. Yes, it feels very earnest, but um, but it's not very good. <laughs> but it is short. It's a very it is short, short song. and I, I appreciate that. You yeah. know, I don't like songs over the over three and a half minutes. This is two two under two. And I half know. Minutes. I appreciate that very much. Okay, so what do we think the song is about? Um, about a rich girl. Okay. I think. That would be my guess. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> uh, probably a guy that uh, is dating a girl who comes from money. I'm assuming he doesn't really come from money. Feels very like Billy Joel, Uptown Girl. Mm-hmm. Feels a bit like that. Um, but, uh, you know, she's kind of a, a brat and he doesn't like that. So he's trying to give her an understanding of what the real world's like. Yeah, a quick dramatic reading of the lyrics, if you couldn't... I mean, they're very present in the mix, so I feel like it, it, it would be pretty easy to pick up, but it's you're a rich girl, and you've gone mm-hmm. too far, because you know mm-hmm. it don't matter anyway. You can rely on the old man's money. It's a bitch girl, but it's gone too far, because you know it don't matter. So, so like, and we just kind of keep repeating that over and over and over again. There's no real, like... It's all chorus. It's just like two choruses and then two more choruses and then two more choruses. That's right. It's a song full of chorus. Which is cool. I mean, I guess. That's like the R.E.M. song. Uh, this one goes out to the one I love. Oh, yeah. Which is just mm-hmm. three choruses in a row and that's it. That is, isn't it? Um, so, this is from Super70s.com. Okay. So, we're, gonna, we're, we're taking it back. Daryl Hall and John Oates met in a service elevator while trying to escape a fight between rival black gangs at a record hop in Philadelphia's Adelphi Ballroom. I don't recognize most of the words in that sentence. Well, Philadelphia is the city where we're from. (laughs) Okay, that one I know. And a service elevator is what the peasants use. Um, And so, like, already, like, they were, like, trying to escape a gang fight? Yes. Okay. (laughs) That fateful meeting encapsulates several keys to the duo's unique personality, their southeastern Pennsylvania roots, a mixture of black and white cultures and music, and a career with more ups and downs than an elevator. Oh, no. Who wrote that? Super70s.com. Oh, Super70s.com. Yikes. Daryl and John have been stylistic chameleons, though at their core, they always basically tried to combine rhythm and blues and progressive music. And that's a quote from John Oates. Okay. So they were lumped into the blue-eyed soul kind of genre, which we've talked about on the show a lot as being like more than a little bit racist. Um, But it's important to note that John Oates is a person of color so mm-hmm. it's like at least a little it's like i don't know it's uh, it's not great <laughs> right not so much soul in the blue-eyed soul right it's well it's interesting just because i wouldn't have been able to tell you what kind of music that was that i just listened to right so it's interesting to have it explained to me that might be that also might be like part of why that it doesn't like jive with you is like what is this why why am I listening to this? Yes, exactly. I think you're hitting the nail on the head with that one. I'm just like, what? <laughs> <laughs> exactly is this? Doo-wop groups like The Temptations, The Stacks, um, they were their, the early influences. And in his preteen days, Daryl Hall, jo- who was born Daryl Franklin Hall, like H-O-H-L, not H-A-L-L. I don't know. Oh, okay. He would skip his piano lessons, which he hated, and ride his bicycle to the heart of the, of the Black Chicken Hill Ghetto across the bridge from his grandfather's farm in Pottsdown, Pennsylvania, so he could absorb the music. Wow. So, like, if we're writing the Hall & Oates biopic, it's, like, young Daryl Hall, young white Daryl Hall, like, <laughs> escaping the farm to go to the <laughs> wrong side of the tracks. <laughs> um, I think, doesn't Pottstown have a, uh, a nuclear power plant? Too. Does it? I think so. Or is it Pottsville? Oh, there's a couple of pots there's, in Pennsylvania. Pottersville. It's possible. <laughs> um, 
So John Oates, his first instrument was the accordion. And oh my god, that's incredible. That soon gave way to guitars and banjo, and he assembled a Motown cover band when he was in sixth grade. And he's like oh. basically has never had. I don't want to say real job, but he's net. He's only been a musician basically his whole life. Oh, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, kind of cool, right? Mm-hmm. Both were leading their own groups. Daryl Hall's group was called the Temp Tones. The Temp Tones. Temp Tones. Mm. And John Oates' group was called the Masters. And they both attended Temple University. Um, and like when they met in 67, that they were both attending Temple University. They teamed up to make their debut album, which was called Whole Oats. Oh, that's incredible. I know. And Atlantic released it because the 60s were a weird time and anyone could just get a record deal. Wow. That, what a time to be alive. Whole Oats. Whole Oats. Whole Oats. And so they abandoned that after the first record and they, they, call, they call their second LP Abandoned Luncheonette as that was their first as Hall and & Oats and they call that their first real record. Okay. And this is the album that tagged them as blue-eyed soulsters basically their first hit was she's gone you know she's gone no okay we can take a quick listen to she's gone i feel like it's gonna be the same for you just like i don't like this that much (laughs) i'm also like shocked about when they this band started yeah, so, it was like such an '80s band to me. Well, there's a there's kind of a reason for that, but yeah. Okay. So '76 was their first what I would call like a like a hit single. Gotcha. So there's like a groove to this, I guess. Yeah, yeah. This is not terrible. <laughs> Like they're taking way too much time with this. Yeah, they're they're really milking it. They're really milk for not being that great at. Have you never heard this song? I don't know if I've heard this song before. And so one of the sources that I found that I like cut out was like that in the 70s they really embraced this like kind of actual soul music instrumentation and then when the 80s came along they're like synthesizers yes that feels right (laughs) yeah this is different than anything i think i've really understood about this band to be honest (laughs) it's pretty good though i mean i don't dislike it yeah i think that this is in like I, d- I definitely have like heard this in movies and on the radio and not realized it's hollow notes because I yeah, do uh, associate it with like you make of my dreams come true or whatever. Yes, definitely. That is the song that I associate hollow notes with. Absolutely. So uh, she's gone was written for uh, if because of Daryl Hall's divorce from his wife, Brenna and a New Year's date that stood John up and (laughs) Lou Rawls recorded it it was very weird but it hit number seven so it was like it was a hit but it wasn't like a smash and then they moved to RCA Records and Todd Rundgren produced their their second record as Hollow Notes called War Babies and then their this is like their first legitimate hit which is Sarah Smile another just like it's a ballad it was a ballad for uh, Daryl Hall's girlfriend Sarah Allen Okay. Baby hair with a woman's eye. 
which they started recording in the summer of 1976 was called Bigger Than Both of Us and that's the record with Rich Girl. Okay. So they had moved from Philly to Greenwich Village much like another person I know. And <laughs> I never lived in Greenwich Village. Well, though, whatever. So. It's, it's all New York. <laughs> it's all the same thing. Whatever. It's fine. Um, and they thought that their, their hit was going to be a, a song called "Do What You Want, Be What You Are," mm. but it it's it very... fizz- yeah. I've n- literally never heard this song before. Well, it's got a very positive message, Eve. Yeah. Do you want to listen to it for the first time? Yeah. Do what you yeah, want. Yeah, I, I do want to do that. Yes, that be is what, what I want are. to do. <clears throat> listen, you you knew what you were getting into with this. <laughs> I know so much hollow notes. I don't. This is the most I think I ever have or ever will listen to Hollow Notes. I know. I'm usually the one that's like, fuck this band. <laughs> well, you know me. That is my specialty. I know. is just being a hater. Yes, Love just it. hating on everything. <laughs> everything everybody else likes. Listeners, now you know where I get it. Yes. to get why they thought this might be a hit it sounds like a little like dire straits or something yes this does feel like it would have been uh, pretty popular at the time no, it peaked at number 39 oh okay so so not great mm. but like that got played at a lot of key parties <laughs> right though so, i mean yeah very much um okay okay so the second single from the lp was rich girl and that debuted at number 81 on january 22nd 1977 and then it rose over the next nine weeks to number one Wow. It was their it was their first number one single. Here's the here's the true mystery, right? This was all just set up for the t- true question of the episode. Mm. Who is the rich girl? Who is the rich girl? So I hear that you have a theory. Do I? <laughs> <laughs> of your of your friend's mom. Oh, that's right. That's right. So yeah, so I did. I had a friend in or a guy I knew in high school. He was a little bit older than me, a little bit of a weirdo. But he used to like to his claim to fame was that his mom had sex with both Hall and Oates. But you see, Eve, the reason that I did not put two and two together is that she was not rich. So oh, she it just doesn't make sense. She the was song rich could in not love. have been about her. She was rich in love and in spirit. So do we but think- mostly love? Do we think that they were listening to Do What You Want, Be What You Are while <laughs> getting tag-teamed I mean, by both Hall and Oates? I mean, I, I hope so. That really it sets the mood. It really <laughs> sets the mood. It does set the mood. 
I will say they're both kind of cute, though. So yeah, back in the day, like they yeah. get it. I get it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, so, had quite the stash. <laughs> he he, that flavor saver. Mm-hmm. Um. So beautiful. At the time, the rumor was that Rich Girl was about Patty Hearst. Oh my God. Okay. So quick explainer about Patty. So who who is Patty Hearst? Patty Hearst was like the heir to the Hearst fortune, basically yes. the publishing magnet, the Hearst family. Um, and she kind of got kidnapped by the Sandinistas, right? The no, Sandinistas? so so she actually prefers Patricia. Another myth busting. Oh, Patricia. Patricia Hearst. Patricia Hearst. She was the third of five daughters uh, of Randolph Apperson Hearst, and Randolph was the youngest-ish brother of uh, youngest-ish son of William Randolph Hearst. And I use "ish" because he had a twin brother who was just like a few minutes younger than him, so he's technically ah. the second youngest. But like, whatever. And yeah, she was the heiress to one of the wealthiest people to ever live. When she was 19 years old, she was a sophomore at Berkeley, and she was living with her boyfriend, a dude named Stephen Weed. Oh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> and she was, <laughs> she was kidnapped by, from her Berkeley apartment by a left-wing group called the Symbionese Liberation Army. The Symbionese Liberation Right, 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 Which right, is, right. Uh, forgive forgiving that you don't remember that didn't remember the name because it is a entirely made up name there's no such thing as a symbionese i just got confused with that <laughs> um what is it uh is it the clash that sandinistas yeah yeah <laughs> um so her hearst was carried away blindfolded put in the trunk of a car and the neighbor's who came out to the street were forced to take cover because the kidnappers fired guns to cover their, their escape. And they held her for ransom as like a quote unquote prisoner of war. And uh, after, after a week, the Symbionese Liberation Army demanded that the Hearst family give $70 of food to every needy person from Santa Rosa to Los Angeles. And then they would negotiate the return for, for Patricia. And mm-hmm. Hearst gave away $2 million worth of food. Randolph Hearst, her, her dad, gave away $2 million worth of food. And the Simonese were like, that's not, that's not enough. Do $6 million more. And, they, and the Hearst Corporation was like, no. <laughs> they said wow. that they would donate the additional sum if Patricia were released unharmed. Okay. Okay. Oh. And there's a famous picture of Patricia holding like a gun. So they, yeah. So they robbed a San Francisco bank, and she was spotted during the robbery holding a gun. And she declared on tape that she had joined the Symbionese Liberation Army from her own free will. So this is where one of the one of the weirder guest stars of the episode comes in, Jeffrey Tubin. Oh wait, what? (laughs) So Jeffrey Jeffrey Tubin wrote a book called American Heiress about mm-hmm. Patricia Hearst and he asked the question like was she act so like the word Stockholm syndrome got like bandied around a lot right. and so he asked the question like was she actually was it Stockholm syndrome was she there by like by her own free will and so this is mm-hmm. a this is a quote from Jeffrey Tubin on Fresh Air with Terry Gross you look at this photograph and you have to wonder whose side is she on the mystery of that photograph is really what the mystery of the book is all about. So American Heiress revisits the famous kidnapping and ongoing question of Hearst's motivations for the 19 months that followed her abduction. Quote Tubin, if you look at her actions over the following year, you see the actions of a revolutionary, not a victim. There was some glamour to what she was doing, the swagger of wearing berets and carrying machine guns. The romance of revolution was an undeniable part of the appeal of the Symbionese Liberation Army. So, nuts and bolts, on May 17th, 1975, LA, Los Angeles police raided the Symbionese secret headquarters they killed six of the group's nine known oh members and, including donald defreeze who was the leader um and his like his he had changed his name to general field marshal Sinke, that he was like their leader and uh D- did they ever kill or hurt anybody i don't think so i mean they threatened okay. people with guns and they robbed some banks but right. yeah it seems right. like that may have been 
an overreaction. Yeah, well, I mean, when hasn't that happened? Yeah, the LAPD yes. is not known it's for... kind of what they're known for. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so Pat- Patricia and two others were not there. And so finally on September 18th, 1975, after crossing the country, she like zigzagged the country a bunch with her captors or conspirators or whatever. She had changed her name to Tanya. And she was captured in a San Francisco apartment and arrested for the robbery of that bank. And then she claimed that she had been brainwashed by the Symbionese Liberation Army. And she was convicted in 1976 and sentenced to seven years in prison. She served 21 months before Mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter commuted her sentence. And then uh, Bill Clinton pardoned her fully in January of 2001, right before he left office. Interesting. Yeah. So. Back to Tubin. Yes, always. Patricia and the two other Symbionese Liberation Army members that weren't there decided to go shopping. They need stuff and they go to a sporting goods store. Bill and Emily Harris, the other two members, go inside the sporting goods store, leaving Patricia in a van across the street with the key in the ignition. She's free to leave. She can drive away. She can walk away. But instead, she waits. Bill and Emily stupidly decided to shoplift. They leave the store, and the clerk tackles them on the sidewalk. Across the street, Patricia is looking at her two comrades tackled by a clerk. So what does she do alone in the van? Does she drive away? Does she walk away? No. She picks up a machine gun and fires wildly across the street, trying to free Bill and Emily Harris. It doesn't work at first, so she picks up another gun and fires another uh, barrage of bullets across the street, miraculously not hitting anybody. But freeing bill and emily harris who get back in the van and drive off man yeah it's weird jeffrey tubin says that to me is the symbol and demonstration of how patricia hurst had really changed sides because given the opportunity to walk away when her colleagues and and her comrades were arrested she fired a machine gun across a busy street and that to me is the act of a woman who had joined the sla so the premise of rich girl is maybe that She's gone to, Patty has gone too far. Yes. But it won't matter because her dad's rich. Right. Um, that seems right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In American Heiress, Tubin says that he tried to avoid using terms like brainwashing and Stockholm syndrome because those are journalistic terms, not medical terms. And his view of right. Patricia's story is that she responded rationally to the circumstances she was confronted with at each stage of the process. She was 19 years old. She was being treated well by the SLA. She was being told that her family and the FBI were abandoning her. And she did, in fact, join with them. She robbed three banks. She shot up a street in Los Angeles. She helped plant bombs in several places in Northern California. She had multiple opportunities to escape over a year and a half. She went to the hospital for Poison Oak. She could have said the doctor, oh, by the way, I'm Patty Hearst. She was caught in an inaccessible place while hiking and forest rangers helped her out and she could have said oh by the way i'm patty hurst she didn't escape because she didn't want to escape she was part of the group after she was arrested in september of 75 she responded rationally then too she said yeah i don't want to be a part of all this lunacy anymore i recognize that my family loves me i recognize that i want to go back to my former life and that's the position that she took so be so Tubin and maybe Hall and Oates are being kind of critical of Patricia's motivations. I don't know. Right. Well, I just think, and, you know, I don't really know what, I, I can't make a decision one way or the other on what Patricia, you know, her real motivations were. But I don't like that Jeffrey Tubin saying things that I think can be perceived as victim blaming against other people who've been kidnapped. Because it happens all the time where people are kidnapped and held hostage by you know, horrible people and they don't, they have many opportunities to maybe get away and they just don't because they're scared. It happens yeah. all the time. So. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if Jeffrey Tubin is the world's leading expert in the motivations <laughs> no. of women. No, he's sure not. So <laughs> um, let's yeah. not necessarily take his word for. <laughs> I, 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 I'm similarly conflicted where, you know, I think that there is a level of opportunism in, in her actions and, you know, maybe she, yeah. it's possible that she could have romanticized what was going yes. on and let it get out of hand. Uh, I, I, I'm, I have complicated feelings about like the idea of brainwashing in general. Yeah. Well, I definitely do, but I think, yeah. And I think she's just a different, she's different than, you know, a lot of victims in situations. She's got a lot of privilege that not everybody has. So. And, 
and being pardoned, serving 21 months and, and having her sentence commuted by Jimmy Carter and then being fully pardoned by Bill Clinton, like shows that privilege because none of the other Symbionese Liberation Army members were because she right. had the she was able to just be like, oh, it wasn't me. I was brainwashed. Right. Well, exactly. But but again, yeah, I, I hate I'd hate for, you know, what happened with Patty Hearst to reflect in any way on like victims who are really and not that not saying she wasn't really in a bad situation, but are in situations where they just feel like they can't get away, even if they have, quote unquote, opportunities. It's not as cut and dry yeah, as the as the general wisdom. And it's also not definitely not as cut and dry as Jeffrey Tubin is saying. Definitely. So. Mm. Do, so so on what you you've got a pretty good bullshit meter on a scale from <laughs> one to ten how confident are you that rich girl is about patty Hearst? um oh gosh I, well it seems like it really could be um i would i don't know i'd give it like wait is wait 10 that it's most that it is 10 that it's definite and <laughs> one that you know it's sure. I, i'd not. give it like a five and a half. Oh, okay yeah Rich girl is not about Patty Hearst. Damn. All right. All right. From an, it, but it's about someone even weirder. Oh, well, that's fun. Rich girl. Uh, this is from an interview in American songwriter. Rich girl was written by about an old boyfriend of Sarah Allen's. Right, Sarah Allen of Sarah Smile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rich girl was written about an old boyfriend of Sarah Allen's from college that she was still friends with at the time. His name is Victor Walker. He came to our apartment, and he was acting sort of strange. His father was quite rich. I think he was involved in some kind of fast food chain. I said, this guy's out of his mind, but he doesn't have to worry about it because his father's going to bail him out of any problems he gets, gets in. So I sat down and wrote that chorus. He can rely on the old man's money. He can rely on the old man's money. He's a rich guy. And I thought that didn't <laughs> sound right, so I changed it to rich girl. Wow. And wow, apparently- that is... So like uninteresting. I mean, not that. <laughs> no, well, no offense see you to next me, week, everyone. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's like not the most interesting motivation for us, <laughs> right? <laughs> but so, it is funny. So Victor Walker knows that the song was written about him. <gasps> oh no! And Victor Walker is the son of Victor Walker Senior, who owned fifteen. KFC franchises and was oh the original God. owner of the Walker Brothers original pancake house in Chicago. Wow. Wow, does, what a what a uh, an inheritance. Does does the does the Walker Brothers pancake house ring a bell to you? No, it doesn't. They, it, it was it was prominently featured at the end of an a millennial classic movie, Mean Girls. <gasps> it was? How yes. did I know that? And your spring fling queen, future co-chair of the Student Activities Board, and winner of two gift certificates to the Walker Brothers Pancake House. Incredible. Katie Herring. Incredible. Well. And he comes up and hands her the gift certificates to the Walker Brothers Pancake House later. On behalf of the senior class, I would like to present you with two gift certificates. Thanks, sucker. Peace. (laughs) One gift certificate to the Walker Brothers Pancake House. Thank you. God, so good. Oh, I wonder if that's still around. It is. Go. I've got. I don't I've, like pancakes I've, though. I've been there. You don't like pancakes? They're disgusting. Yeah. You like neither pancakes nor hollow oats. How are pancakes disgusting? <laughs> I know. I'm gonna get a lot of hate mail. Yeah. This is why I had you on <laughs> is so that uh, the hate mail could be directed at someone else but me. Take um, some of the heat off of you. Yeah. So. Sarah Allen was clearly an important muse for Daryl Hall. We have complicated, <laughs> complicated relationship with the word muse on this show, but she was the subject mm. of Sarah Smile, Las Vegas Turnaround, which is also called the Stewardess Song, and your, your and Sarah's and also her ex boyfriend is the premise of Rich Girl, and Sarah's yeah. sister Jana went on to co write songs with Hall and Oates. Including your kisses on my list and private eyes. Oh, that's all. Oh my god! Wow. Well, those See? are some of the best. So. Now you now you know. I mean, well, you know, the Jana years of Hall and Oates are definitely my favorite. <laughs> Hall and Oates and Jana. Hall and Oates and Jana. Yeah, that's kiss. that's the era. <laughs> I forgot that was Hall and Oates. Oh my god. So, to what do Hall and Oates owe their popularity? Is it Satan? 
Yeah, probably. That's so, my guess. So this is from Salon, and the the title of the article is "I Can't Go for That: The <laughs> Case Against Hollow Notes," which is just mm-hmm. great. Mm-hmm. So okay, this is this is where things get kind of kind of funky. Ready? Yes. In March 1987, in the March 1987 issue of Penthouse, Daryl Hall, who's the white guy, the blonde-headed, m- non-mustachioed half of Hall and Oates, ex- explained, <laughs> yes. explained his interest in the dark arts. <laughs> Quote, around 1974, I graduated into the occult. And- <laughs> I'm sorry, and- what? Yep. <laughs> How do you graduate into the occult? Like, I don't know. Okay. You graduate from just regular from Christianity. I'll let Daryl tell. I'll let Daryl tell his story. Sorry. He said, "I spent a sick, a solid six or seven years immersed in the Kabbalah and the <laughs> and the Chaldean, 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 the Celtic and Druid traditions and ancient techniques for focusing the inner flame." Do we consider? Sorry, no, none of these. In fact, <laughs> well, I was gonna say, do we consider Kabbalah a dark art? No, I mean it's no. it's it's Judaism, so it's like ooh, spooky. Right. Well, right. Ooh, okay. Jews. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> the the will that can create unimagined things and truly transform your individual universe. Hey, all right, okay. Well, full disclosure, I'm getting a little into witchcraft myself. As Hell it, so yeah! I can't. I can't. <laughs> So I can't laugh at this quite as much as I, I would have maybe in the past, but I am learning to read tarot, so. Oh, okay. You well, know. There you go. So I'm, you, I'm forging you... my own deal with the devil, so I can't really. You're basically Daryl Hall. <laughs> I'm basically Daryl Hall. I'm the female Daryl Hall. Hall also revealed that his great-great-grandfather was a warlock. <laughs> okay, all right. Well. <laughs> and no. he... And then he placed himself in a lineage of noted Satanist Aleister Crowley. Oh, God. Okay. Quote. No. <laughs> I was fascinated with him because his personality was the late 19th century, late 19th century equivalent of mine. A person. <laughs> what does that mean? He explains a person brought up in a, conventional, a conventionally religious family who did everything he could to outrage the people around him as well as himself. Oh, well. I have to stress okay. this is the guy that co wrote Your Kisses on my list. <laughs> well, it's pretty satanic when you think about it. Yeah. So the, I think that there's something to that key party theory that you had. <laughs> yes. With longtime collaborator John Oates, Hall made some of the most harmless, lame, and conservative pop music of the MTV era. <laughs> when they were singing, I can't go for that, no can do, Ozzy was biting the head off of a bat. <laughs> when they scored a number one hit with Out of Touch, Madonna was singing like a prayer in front of Burning Crosses, another one of our episodes. You, oh, yes. you don't have to be controversial to be respectable or interesting, of course, but aside from Hall's interest in the occult, the duo rejected controversy and embraced conformity. They made safe pop that minds its manners. Okay, but maybe that's like that's how they get but you. Isn't that well? That's the, well. That's kind of what I'm saying. Like, who are we to gatekeep the occult? Um, who are you we know, to like the Ma- occult? Madonna and Ozzy were just doing it for fame and to rile people up. You know, maybe Daryl was really. Doing the damn thing. I don't He's, know. Yeah, him on his yacht, yacht rocking yeah. to forsake. Yeah. <laughs> Does he have a yacht? Do you know that he has a yacht? I'm assuming. He's like it's the like, progenitor of yacht rock. <laughs> I was just, sorry, that just reminds me of uh, Joe Manchin's, like, Joe Manson, Manchin's yacht and everybody being like, well, it's a houseboat, technically. <laughs> oh, good. It's a yacht. It's a yacht. <laughs> I'm praying to Satan that Joe Manchin's houseboat sinks. Yes, that would be great. Satan. Due to natural causes. Like Satan. What? I don't care. Whatever. <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to personally do it, but yeah. I'm not going to begrudge someone who does. Um, on the other hand, this is still <laughs> from Salon. How else okay. could Hall and Oates enjoy such a successful career, but through the intervention of some occult entity? How else could they maintain such a vaunted legacy such that their hits are not meant with a rolling of our collective eyes, but with a jubilant sing-along of listeners who weren't even born when private eyes were watching you? 
How else could they have been voted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame without oh, some animal sacrifices and a whole lot of black candles? That's awful. <laughs> Wait, okay. Well, I mean, they make some good points in this article. They really do. This is what, this is what I'm saying. Hollow Notes have been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame since 2014. That's like... Mm. Okay, so they've been in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame longer than... I can't think of anybody off the top of my head who just got into it, but someone... Like, didn't Tina Turner just get in by herself? Oh, yeah, I think you're right. hmm Yeah. I mean, she was in with Ike before, but oh, I think she we, just got... We not, mentioned not that on, uh, on our... The Phil Spector. Phil Spector episode. Yeah, so Tina mm-hmm. Turner was inducted as a solo artist during the 2021 Rock and Roll yes. Hall of Fame induction ceremony. Yeah, so... Hollow got there before her, so that's just horrible. <laughs> so, the devil's at work. Some more evidence of the satanic Hollow Notes. Mm. Yes. Okay. Ready to um, gird your loins, strap in. <laughs> okay, I'm ready. I'm ready. A year or two after Rich Girl comes out, Daryl Hall was flipping through a book about the notorious Son of Sam killer when he found <laughs> out that. The son of Sam was motivated by rich girl. <laughs> what? <laughs> okay, okay, wait. So rich girl made him want to shoot pretty young girls? Is that That's the... what he that's what he that's what David Berkowitz claimed, yes. Well David Berkowitz claims a lot of things though that they think aren't true. So what a good segue into our next section. Yay! So Daryl Hall says, it wasn't exactly a pleasant thing to know. <laughs> sure. sure. Um, so David, if, if you don't know, David Berkowitz was known as the son of Sam. He is an American serial killer. He murdered six people in New York City from 76 to 77. And the summer of 77 plunged a city into, the, into a panic. And there was like a giant manhunt in New York. He was arrested on August 10th, 77, 11 days after his last murder, and he was sentenced to six consecutive 25 years to life terms. So he was born Richard David Falco mm-hmm. uh, to an impoverished Jewish mother, and he was adopted by a Jewish-American hardware store owner na- named Nathan and Pearl Berkowitz, and so he changed his last name and kind of his first name, too. And he was very close to his birth mother, but he had a difficult time as a teenager coping with her death. At the age of 18, he enlisted in the army and served in South Korea, where he was a proficient marksman. Uh, I do remember that. Yeah, that sounds right. What, what a coincidence. Yeah, weird how that happened. Foreshadowing. He left the army in 74 and returned to New York, where he got a job as a letter sorter for the U.S. Postal Service. Mm. Once again, just ticking all the boxes. Every single one. Right? Yeah, the Postal Service. I forgot about that. He's, mm. uh, neighbors and coworkers described him as a loner who kept to himself. Mm. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, this, this sounds like achingly familiar to basically everything we know about serial killers. And that's, that's uh, the tail wagging the dog. Like the, the serial killer profile was built off of interviews with him and several other, you know, watch the right. show Mine Hunter. Right. Yeah, so, Mindhunter. Do we not like Mindhunter? Oh, no, I like Mindhunter. Yeah. I think it's good. I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, the, <laughs> the, the guy who plays Berkowitz in it is crazy good. They did some good um, casting for the yeah. various serial killers in that. The Ed Kemper is insane. The Ed He's Kemper's really good. so good. I want to put He's him in so something. good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so on July 29th, 1976, Berkowitz began his killing rampage, starting with two teenage girls. Jody Valenti and Donna Loria in the Bronx, and they were just like sitting in Valenti's car in front of one of their homes, and Berkowitz shot them. A few months later, he did it again. He spotted a couple in a parked car and fired at them, resulting in an injury to the man's skull. In November, he shot two more teen girls walking home and left one in a wheelchair. Police at the time didn't put these shootings together. They had no idea that they were related because, like, police have always been great at their jobs. <laughs> they don't like sharing information. They certainly don't. Um, or at least they didn't. But in January of 77, Berkowitz attacked another couple in a parked car. Uh, it was Christine Freund and her fiance. And he shot twice, striking Freund in the head. And because he used the same gun in all of his shootings, the police finally put together the thing and 
referred to him as the 44 caliber killer. And then he started like sending letters a la Zodiac calling himself the son of Sam. Right. So in March, Berkowitz murdered a college student named Virginia Vakarichian. Oh, yeah, that's a tough one. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. she was walking home from school. She was a college student. And the next month, there is two more Suriani and Esau in their car. And this time he left a letter addressed to the NYPD captain calling himself the son of Sam. And he just left a he taunted police and just the the letters are just like nonsense. It's like, I believe in Craig. Craig equals death. Craig is Craig. Nonsense. Mm -hmm. That's basically pretty much exactly word for word. It's pretty close. It's pretty close. It really is. And so his final hit happened in the early hours of July 31st, 1977 in Brooklyn. He shot Stacey Moskowitz and Bobby Violante. And fortunately for po- the police, a witness noticed something at the scene and they cracked the case. So they arrested him, the, they arrested him on August 10th, 1977 because his car had a parking ticket on it. And oh they God. like traced the parking tickets. And according, according to the New York Times, when they caught him, he said, well, you've got me. <laughs> oh, David. Oh, David. <laughs> okay. So what's the thing? The thing about Son of Sam is the dog, right? Right. The dog. So you want to take the dog this? that told him to kill. Yeah. That, well, I mean, I, well, uh, Every time I think about the dog, the son, son of Sam dog, I think of Summer of Sam, the Spike yeah. Lee movie. Which I kind of like. have. It's a good movie. It yeah. really is. I used to make fun of it, but then I watched it more as an adult, and I'm like, this is good. It's kind of good, yeah. But um, the dog is hilarious in it. It's like, it's a black lab, and he tells David Berkowitz, I want you to go out and kill, 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 and the way, it's just very funny. Please watch yes. it on YouTube. The CGI is not good. <laughs> It's a very bad CGI. The voice choice is really bad for the dog, too. It's just very funny. Shut that dog up! How can this be? I thought I killed you, Mr. Black Dog. How did you get in here? Leave me alone! What do you want? I want you to go out and kill. Kill! Kill! I will kill. I will. I'll do anything you say. I'll do anything you say. Yes, master. I will kill. I will kill. It was uh, his neighbor's dog, right? A black lab that he said was telling him to kill. So, yeah. Berkowitz explained that he had been commanded to kill by his neighbor's dog. His neighbor was named Sam Carr. And... Mm -hmm. That Sam was sending messages through the dog, whose name was Harvey. And then, oh, Harvey. Uh, uh, other, yeah, he didn't do anything wrong, Harvey. No, Harvey's of course funny. he didn't. Justice and, for Harvey. And then other, other news sources claim that Berkowitz said that the dog was possessed by a 6,000 year old demon. Mm-hmm. And th- I guess that's who was telling him to kill. Right. So, due to this absolute batshit claim berkowitz went (laughs) underwent numerous psychological evaluations but was declared competent to stand trial and he pled guilty in 1978 and he also pled guilty to 1500 fires what that he had set around new york city god damn wow 1500 that's impressive and when the judge so he pled guilty but when the judge like levied down his decision Berkowitz tried mm-hmm. to jump out of the seventh floor courtroom. No. Oh, Dave. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> not going to happen, buddy. <sighs> but since his arrest, Berkowitz has retracted the p- possessed dog story. Right, right. Said, what a surprise. Yeah. He said, quote, it was all a hoax, a silly hoax. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so silly. So, yeah, really hilarious. <laughs> all those murders, so silly. Gotcha. <laughs> you got me. Um, and in 1979, he sent a letter to his psychologist that said that it was a hoax. And he had also made statements that he had been part of a violent cult that helped him carry out the murders. And mm-hmm. the me- fellow members were his neighbor's sons, John and Michael. Jeez, this poor neighbor. What I did know. he do to David Berkowitz that's got them all? <laughs> Something <Jeez>. fucking... <laughs> 
kept him up. Right. <laughs> this dog was barking. Um, oh, New York City neighbors. And so Berkowitz was given a lot of money to share his story. But since then, basically every state in the union have passed laws known as the Son of Sam laws that prevent convicted criminals from financially profiting from books and movies and other things related to their crime. Mm-hmm. Um, so not only is he alive, but he claims he's a born again Christian now. Oh my God. Of course he does. In, oh. in 87, oh. he became an evangelical Christian while in prison after a fellow oh. inmate gave him a Bible. Oh. <laughs> He'd never seen one before. He know. He's Jewish. Oh. He doesn't know. <laughs> right. And oh. he has started a website through uh, a rise it's called arise and shine.org oh god i that's horrible that's awful and he now that's refers bad. to himself as the son of hope <laughs> what yeah. jackass <clears throat> um so he's been up for parole on numerous occasions the 16th time was in 2018 and he has been consistently denied release um, surprise. A keen podcast listener might have noticed something though. So he said so he said Rich Girl inspired him to kill, right? Right. Right. In, in this in this uh like serial killers book interview that he did. But a keen mm-hmm. podcaster might have noticed that Berkowitz started his killings in July of 76 and Rich Girl was released in January of 77. Oh, wait. According to other interviews it just seems that berkowitz like listened to rich girl to amp himself up to do the murders which is god what that's so horrific i just don't even it's horrific it's what a scene isn't is playing in my head right now but like why rich girl why rich girl why why the devil i guess the sex pistols existed they sure did. Yeah, we're going to do an, a Sex Pistols episode about how they were a boy band. Boo. Yeah, not a, not a fan. Not a fan. I guess I like Hollow Notes more than I like the Sex Pistols. Me so too. Mm-hmm. Um, so after Hollow Notes discovered that Berkowitz listened to Rich Girl to amp himself up to do murders and was inspired to do more murders by listening oh to Rich Girl, they wrote a song. No called diddy doo-wop parentheses i hear the voices oh my god that is so awful uh it's a track on the album voices oh no and john oates refers to the song as a song about an axe murderer okay so this is diddy doo-wop i hear the voices this is very weird right pretty bad right this is like it's like they're trying to sound like talking heads yeah talking heads plus like billy joel a little yes yes that is bizarre you know what the problem is though Mm -hmm. i think the song kind of slaps i mean it's not okay there's Yeah, I kind of like it. I don't hate it. This might be my favorite Hall and Oates song. Well, that's, I mean, that's not saying much. But subject matter sure. notwithstanding. Yes. <laughs> yeah, subject matter notwithstanding. Wow. Wow. So there's the line Charlie liked the Beatles, yes. Sam, he liked Rich Girl. He sure did. Charlie, a little throwback to Charles Manson there. Yeah. Is that what that is? Exactly. Exactly right. Which is like also putting himself on the same level as the Beatles. And I, I'm on record as not loving the Beatles as much as most people, but like. Sure. Yeah. But that, I mean, even if you don't like the Beatles, that's just an insane. An insane comparison. Yes. That's an insane comparison to make about yourself if you're hollow notes. Oh, it's the boss that I hear. 
So do you uh, you want to take the first verse? I just dropped the lyrics in the chat. Oh, okay. Sure. I will start. Look at me. I'm running. Ooh, what have I done? Oh, I must have hurt someone. It's dark in subway station. It's dark in subway station. It's probably Give the. Me Give me place to hide. It's missing a lot of like A's and thes. <laughs> oh, I hear the voices deep inside. And oh, the voice is singing. Did he do wop? Is this you? I don't know. Diddy doo wop. Well, it's the voices that I hear at the subway stop keep singing Diddy doo wop. So I'll do the second verse. Charlie liked the Beatles. Sam, he liked rich girl. Bitch girl. But I'm still (laughs) hung up on the Duke of Earl. Reaching for the handle, I'm slicing through the air. Swish, swish. And the doo wop voice is everywhere. And the Duke is singing Diddy doo wop. Yeah, like really That's- fucking dark. And like, okay, so is this in bad taste? Yes. I I, I kind of want to defend it, but I, I don't have a leg to stand on, really. No, it's in, it's in bad taste. It's, a, it's one thing to write a song about a serial killer or whatever, but to write one specifically because the serial killer said he liked to listen to your music, music before, or your specific song before he went out and killed women, and like yeah. kind of brag about it. That's right. that's really that's my problem with this song is is that it's right. not like I can understand if Daryl Hall is like, oh man, this like had a profound effect on me, and I'm gonna write this song about like working my way through the the guilt by association or whatever. This right. is not that. No, he no. They have really never been introspective. No, it's definitely not introspective. It's just like, hey, isn't this cool? Did he do up? There are six people dead because of us. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, or whatever. But yeah, it's just kind of cheesy and in bad taste. But here's the, here's the last piece of evidence that I have of the Satan connection. Oh, okay. Which is that between 1977 and Rich Girl and 1980, when this album comes out, Hall & Oates had zero number one hits. <gasps> oh. And then the album Voices comes out, which is a refer- the title of which is a reference to this song. Mm-hmm. And they have five more number one hits for the rest of their career. I mean, is that so unusual, though? I well, I feel like they have to embrace Satan a little bit to get a hit. <laughs> I mean, I guess maybe that's true, right? But I also feel like the '80s was a good decade for them. Yes, they were. They were at the forefront of something, some smooth was, operation that it was good for what they were serving. People were appreciative of that in the '80s. Yes. For some reason. I, I don't know why. Yeah, so Rich Girl was the first of six number one hits for Hollow Notes and is currently the option when you hit number two on the Colin Oates hotline. Are you familiar <laughs> with this? Colin Oates hotline? I am not familiar. Please so, tell me more. Alex and listeners, if you call 719-266-2837, it is the emergency Hollow Notes hotline. 
<laughs> emergency. I've yeah. got an emergency. We, yeah, it's I. You know, I, the emergency is I need to haul and oats. Let's take a listen. Right, I'm, this is this is for real. I'm just gonna call. I called oh, it yesterday yes, to please. see if it was still in operation. Um, so it's seven one nine two six oats. It's a shame. Hall. I feel like Hall never gets any of the like fun name things with his name, name. play it's always oats yeah it's full yeah. oats and welcome to colin oats your emergency hall and oats helpline to hear one on one please press one to hear rich girl please press two to hear manny t- you're a rich girl and you're gone too far cause you know it don't matter so you never have to be far from no any hall and oats song that you want thank god <laughs> now I just have like the idea of somebody in my mind calling that instead of nine one one, and it's very <laughs> funny to me. <laughs> He's choking. What do we do? <laughs> he really loves Holland Oats. I think it'll this will help. Um, so back to Salon. Holland Oats live right on the lip of irony, which is sort of what you were talking about too, right? They're like kind of an ironic band without knowing it, right? Even those current artists who have covered their tunes and insisted on sincerity, the bird and the bee who recorded a full album of hollow notes tunes, Allison Bree, who has a Brooklyn band called, I think the girls and they perform rich girl. Cause of course mm. they all seem to hint that the whole thing is innocently corny. It is. And it isn't, which may be the ultimate complaint against the duo. Their music doesn't signify anything. There's no subtext, no worldview, no underlying melancholy or, or creative exuberance, no real connection to the world outside of the song itself. The music, as a result, is hermetic and ultimately hollow. What a time waster. Mm, yeah, that's a very good description. I think that's so, basically too. That's exactly how I feel. I, I, I think it is harmless. I think this, this author... Um, kind of thinks it's harmful in a way or harmful to oh. art. I think it's kind of <laughs> well, harmless. Well, that's just stupid. <laughs> yeah, this... The idea of something being harmful to art is just bothersome to me. That just doesn't make any sense. So so this, so this is the kind of the question is like, writing something that's in bad taste, like do, Doobie Doo Wop, I Hear the Voices, is, can, is harmful, right? It's in bad taste. Sure. Or like, I don't know, I don't know if harmful is the right word, but like, this is, this is ultimately the problem when like, you don't stand for anything in your art, and then something horrific happens that's inspired by you, and then you like, turn it into more art, but you like, sanitize it. Mm, Right. Okay. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I don't know if I necessarily like, agree with that. It's just like, an interesting, it's an interesting cycle that they have gone through. Right. Right. I guess I don't necessarily agree. I think it's just, you know, it's a real case by case basis. I don't know that, you know, like this would happen with any band that wrote like kind of crappy, meaningless songs. Yeah. They would necessarily write this song. And there's definitely other band, like we've talked about Devo writing a song or co-writing a song with John Hinckley Jr., who is now complaining about not getting royalties for this song. Oh, he is it because of your podcast? Yes. Your podcast? Yeah. We've we've brought light to the. No, he's he's complaining that he hasn't been paid royalties for like 35 years for that song. Oh my god. Oh god. Ugh. I don't um, know, man. Whatever. <laughs> um but we're going to go out today with a story from The Onion. The Onion okay. uh claims that every hit song starts by sampling Rich Girl. <laughs> That's amazing. Come on, come on, turn the radio on. Ah, uh, yes. The familiar markings of a top 40 hit, an infectious beat, a little genre mix and matching, and of course, a catchy chorus. Cheap Thrills from Sia was one of the most popular songs last summer, but what made it such an earworm? Was there a tried and true science behind the track that propelled it up the charts? Well, yes. Every hit song actually starts out the same way by sampling the song Rich Girl by Hall and Oates. You're a rich girl and you're gone too far cause you know it don't matter anyway. Every producer is different, but most start by isolating one of the two dozen or so individual tracks that comprise Rich Girl. Like Quincy Jones did when he took John Oates' opening guitar riff and slowed it down 450% to create the infamous electric strum you hear at the top of Michael Jackson's Beat It. (laughs) 
Now, sampling rich girl doesn't always yield results. For instance, in 2003, Metallica added too much reverb and distortion to Hall Oates' iconic melody and ended up with the song Temptation, which got left off the Saint Anger album due to its directionless plotting and brain-numbing sound. <laughs> But other times, it's proved transcendent. I mean, who would have guessed some quirky DJ with a weird haircut would take John Hall's infamous lyrics, money won't get you too far, get you too far, and literally splice and warp it to pieces to kickstart the reign of electronic dance music. The creative so possibilities with this song are truly uh, endless. Brilliant. But maybe the most creative use of Rich Girl came 37 years after it was written, when Katy Perry decided to sample the song by simply recording it, vocals and all, backwards to create her smash hit, Roar. Rich girl, can you go? <laughs> So, Alex, for the onions, where can people I'm find Ditko. you on the internet if they want to interact with you? Oh, God. Um, let's see. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Al Roxrow, A-L-R-O-X-R-O. That's about it. That's about it. That's and you about can, it. And you can find us on the internet. We're at Lyrics for Lunch on Twitter and Instagram. And for longer and weirder stuff, shoot us an email at lyricsforlunch at gmail.com. And uh, thank you so much for for filling in for Lindsay this week. Thanks for having me. You, Big shoes to fill. Yeah, you yell fun. at me way less than she does. So. Oh really? I thought I was yelling at you too much. So that's good to know. No, no, no. <laughs> if I ever come back, I'll yell at you more. Please do. Um, and tune in next week when we do this again with a different song. Lindsay will be back. And uh, until then, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. And I'm Alex Ranallo. Saying. Bye. Goodbye. You can <laughs> you can rely on your old man. I already that one. I mean, I can't, but someone's got to. <laughs> someone, yeah, me, me too. <laughs> the boys number one, rich chick of the year, yeah. Sorry if you can refer me. Ever since you see me in Cali, she waving. Come on, Lee, call me on the phone talking. Like Tyra Banks, who you in there?